he does to be a joy in you, in, in all of them, even in the hard things. May that be the case. And may that be also the case with he and Mandy in their marriage, in their relationship. And as we reflect this morning on the final passage of the creation account here in Genesis 2, and specifically on the creation of Eve or woman, may the principles that are embedded here instruct their marriage and ours as well and our lives generally. Lord, there is so much in our time today that is at odds with your truth, and even in your church there are many voices that struggle or even reject what is found in some of the prominent New Testament passages on the relationship of men and women, husbands and wives. And yet these things were established all the way back in the creation account. So help us to understand the, the, the two things that are highlighted here. There is a basic equality between men and women, husbands and wives, and yet there is also a headship relationship that exists. And the struggle has been to, to believe and practice those things in unity together. And I pray that we may, in our reflection, see that what we need to do and then seek to commit ourselves to doing so. We ask these things in Christ's name, in whom we pray, amen. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. He'd already, of course, created Adam on day six. This is just another part of day six. Out of the ground, no, I'm sorry, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Rather important, don't want to leave that out. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. That's often thought to be uh, another example of things that are out of order from the original uh, chapter, chapter one of creation, but Hebrew doesn't have a specific word for the pluperfect tense, so we might well read, out of the ground the Lord God had formed, that would be perfectly legitimate translation, um, every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Be careful in applying that today. <clears throat> it was back last November, last year, that I had my last sermon on Genesis. And that was when I preached on Genesis chapter 2 here, verses 4 to 20 which is part of the text this morning. In that message, I covered the whole matter of uh, the need for a helper suitable and the fact that God had this exercise for Adam. He named these, not all the animals that were created, but the ones in the categories that were listed. He named the various animals. And I also talked about why, even though there are many, even Christians, who think that that task required uh, days, weeks, months, perhaps, um, and therefore the creation days aren't to be understood literally as literal days, albeit all the other reasons to consider them as such. But I, I explained why that's really not a problem here. Adam was perfectly capable of naming the animals needing to be named uh, on or within the space of that single sixth literal day of creation. 
So I've covered a chunk of verses 18 to 20 already, but what I did not go into in any depth was the creation of woman, the creation of Eve itself, specifically as a helper suitable for Adam. Verses 18 and 20. God declared, verse 18, we've got to start with this because that's where he starts. God declared that it was not good for man to be alone. Man needed a companion, and Adam's naming of the animals displayed in no uncertain terms that lacking his better half, as wise husbands are wont to say today, Adam was certainly not going to find this suitable partner in the animal kingdom. But now, another point, since there was nothing evil at all in the creation week before the fall into sin, Genesis 3, what are we are to make, what are we to make, rather, of God saying here in verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. Was that bad? And God made it better or corrected it or something. This is the only time in the creation narrative, that narrative is, is chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, that the Lord pronounced anything not good. So what does that mean here in context? Well, it does not mean that God found a flaw in his original plan. The point here is that God's original plan was not yet, he hadn't finished the six days yet, he's now about to create woman. God's original plan was not yet complete with Adam being alone at this point as a human being, the only one. Man had been created for relationships and Adam still needed a perfect mate for his marriage relationship. Now, not all human beings are meant to get married, but the race will not continue <laughs> unless there's marriage and procreation. So. Man as he was created, even before Eve is created, Adam as he was created was very good, as with all the rest of creation. Nothing inherently not good about Adam in his creation. But God never intended to create Adam and leave him alone. If that was what was going to happen, that would ultimately not be good. He created Eve to complement Adam or the man as a helper to accomplish God's purposes. God means for marriage to be a companionship and Eve another human being and not an animal merely was such a suitable companion as Adam was suitable for her. Martin Luther the great reformer called marriage a school of character. Two people united as one flesh will inevitably bring out the best in them and the worst in them in a fallen world. Marriage is thus an opportunity, it's, it's more than this, but it is an opportunity to exercise faith and hope and love and to mature in sacrifice and service to one another and to God, all for God's glory. Now, I have read a book recently that I have recommended. Um, the book's title is Son of Hamas by Mosab Hassan Youssef, who was one, rather, he is the son of one of the prominent leaders, founders of Hamas. Hamas has been in the news a great deal lately. Mosab Hassan Youssef was converted to Christ, he tells this story in his book, and has spoken out in recent time very strongly against Hamas. He was a prince in Hamas, and he has spoken out very strongly against it and their invasion of Israel. What does this have to do with Genesis 2, John? Well, it's this. We understand, I think, 
generally, that the Muslim view of women is rather different than the Christian view of women. And the Muslim view of women is, by comparison, rather degrading of women, treating them literally as second-class citizens under the strict control of their fathers and or their husbands. But Mossab Yusuf, son of Hamas, son of one of the founders of Hamas, in this same strict Muslim view, testifies in his book to the fact that his father very much loved his mother and he emphasizes served her needs in many ways at every opportunity he had to serve her. So I want to just say at this point, even in a religion and a culture contrary to the true God, decidedly contrary to the true God, we can find God's design imprinted on people's lives and even displayed in their actions. Back to Eve. Eve was created, the first woman, as a helper. Now when it says that, this bothers lots of people, as some of the New Testament passages bother lots of people. They shouldn't. They're misunderstanding what is meant. Or they are understanding what is meant, and then they have a problem with what God expects. She is created as a helper. This does not mean that you should read that as she is primarily Adam's domestic support. As though her function was simply to cook his meals, do his dishes, take out his trash, and make his bed. The vitally important duty man had for which he needed a helper was to procreate or populate the earth. Man was not a glorified animal and he needed a wife also created in God's image that together they might serve God's purpose in marriage as equals. Now, marriage is an opportunity to learn and practice self-control. Marriage must be built on much more than sexual passion. There are all kinds of young people that think marriage is the ticket to sex. Well, maybe not so many in our day. They're practicing it already, which is wrong. But marriage is more than simply sexual passion. Sexual love is valid in marriage, but it should be enriching, not merely exciting. Nothing wrong with exciting, but... Not merely that. Husband and wife are to respect one another, not just use one another. Sexual relations are to be practiced within marriage, not outside of it, either by fornication or adultery, either before marriage or after it. So God put Adam into a deep sleep, verse 21, to perform, oh, look at that, the first surgery. God took one of Adam's ribs, we read, or literally, the term here refers to God took part of Adam's side, probably including bone and flesh, to fashion, verse 22, or literally that word means to build woman. Eve was made of the same substance and according to the same model as Adam, she was a person in her own right. No other living creature, Adam's already experienced this naming the animals, but no other living creature could ever become her rival as man's helper, counterpart, and intimate companion. God made Adam a partner from his side part. Eve's genetic structure was derived from and perfectly harmonious with Adam's. Genetic research shows us that all males, you know this, have an X and Y chromosome. All females have a pair of X chromosomes. Genetically, therefore, it is possible to create a female from a male, but not possible to extract a male's genetic code from a female. Spiritually, we note that as Adam was put to sleep and part of his side was taken that he might have a wife, spiritually, we note, Jesus died on a cross, another form of sleep, where his blood was taken or shed that 
he might have a bride, the church. As a result of this surgery that God performed, do do men have one fewer ribs than women? That would be, it is thought by some real evidence that this happened. But men don't have one fewer ribs than women. So then there are those skeptics who consider this to be an evidence of error in Scripture. God didn't take a rib of Adam's and create Eve or a rib and other flesh and create Eve because men still have the same number of ribs as women. But to think this way, one must accept the discredited Lamarckian view of the inheritance of acquired characteristics. Let's say you, in a terrible accident, lose a finger. That does not mean that your children, if you have them, will only have nine digits. Such a loss does not affect the DNA instruction for number of fingers. This is why amputees do not have amputee children. This is why baby girls are not born with holes in their ears. What is fascinating, as much as that's amusing, but it's such a wrong thinking view. What is fascinating, however, is the modern discovery that the rib is the one bone in the human body that will grow back. Thoracic surgeons will sometimes have to remove a rib to make it easier to operate on the organs in the human chest. Knowing, however, do the surgeons, that ribs grow back. God fashioned or built or constructed the first woman. He did not mold her as with clay, but built her, this term indicating her importance. Eve was the first living being created from another living being. Evolution would have you think that, in a sense, all living beings are sort of created or evolved from one another. That's not true. That doesn't happen. She is the first one to have been, and the only one in this sense, to have been created from another living being, showing by such creation, their mutual, unique unity, man and woman, in this relationship. The first woman from the first man, and all men subsequently from women. Created from Adam, Eve perfectly shared with him the image of God. Created not from his head to be over or greater than him. Not from his feet to be under or less than him. Created from his side to be equal with him and near his heart to be beloved. They have a close connection with one another. A close connection as it's hard to fathom the closeness here. And they are thus equal in nature. But we may still fairly say that all other human beings aside from Adam, including Eve, descended from Adam, came from Adam. Now in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13, Paul says in a passage which many today struggle with. Paul says Adam was formed first and then Eve, taking the creation account in Genesis 2 literally as factual history. And then notice 1 Corinthians 11, another passage that many today struggle with. Uh, I think here verses 8 and 9 and then 11 and 12. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. That's not received well by many. In the Lord, neither is the woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Struggle in that text, but there shouldn't be. 
God brought, we read Genesis 2, verse 22, God brought the first woman to the first man, thus ordaining their marriage, a divinely willed and approved state, a monogamous, heterosexual union. One man and one woman is the way God designed marriage. Not more than one wife or more than one husband, not two women or two men, or increasingly multiplied numbers there beyond. Adam is also the head, 1 Corinthians 11, the leader with special responsibilities as such, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, which is why after the fall in sin, God prominently came to Adam. Genesis 3, 9 and following, and confronted him about their sin. And this is God's design for all married couples. The husband is to lead and he bears greater responsibility. Adam was, of course, thrilled and burst into praise when he saw his bride. Verse 23, our text, Genesis 2. The man said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man and she's a whale of a lot better than all those other animals. Identifying her as woman would be a reminder that she was taken out of man and the term man would always be part of woman. She was made from him and for him and he would always need her and the two would belong to each other and are meant to lovingly serve one another. Ephesians 5 verse 21. She is part of himself and they need each other in order to be complete. Both created in God's image and equal in nature and yet as confirmed in so many passages, including this one, with differing roles. Now, to name something, we already talked about this, is to exercise authority over it at some level. Thus, Adam naming Eve indicates a sexual hierarchy of roles that existed before the fall and was not just the result of the curse, Genesis 3 and verse 16. Just as Adam's naming the animals is an act of authority over them to a certain extent. The subordination of the woman, or the submission may be better, of the woman or wives being subject to their husbands, Ephesians 5 verse 22 which so many have struggled with in our time is a totally different concept than what is alleged of this that that, that if that's the case if women have to submit or wives have to submit to their husbands that means they're inferior that's a totally different concept than inferiority submission is not inferiority what Paul taught is completely consistent with what God declared in the creation of Eve from that biblical root, the creation of Eve, in just the way he did it, for the purpose he did it, as a helper to be. Western democracies have taught that all people are equal under the law. But that doesn't mean that some people don't have authority over others. Employees are to submit to their employers. Children are to submit to their parents. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5, verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 9. The forms of submission in just those three cases differ. But in each case, all are examples of differences of role. Children and parents don't have the same role. Employer and employees don't have the same role. Wives and husbands don't have the same role. They're equal, but they don't have the same role. None of this implies inferiority. Children, parents, wives, husbands, employers, employees, slaves, masters, none of these imply inferiority. The clear distinction of equality of nature and submission in roles is illustrated in none other than our triune God. 
The Father and the Son are equal in nature, but the Son submitted himself always to the Father's will. Indeed, Jesus was submissive to his earthly mother and foster father, if you will. Luke 2, verse 51, a clear case of a superior submitting to his inferiors by nature. Jesus was superior to Mary and Joseph, but submitted to them properly as their son in context. It is so sad that there is such rebellion today against God's created roles of authority and submission, all of which are intended for our good insofar as wives are to submit to their husbands and the first woman was created as a helper for the first man. Husbands are to love their wives self-sacrificially. They don't always do so, but that's God's intention, and that is a submission of greater note. All godly human authority is meant to be servant-hearted. The one in authority acting to serve the good of those they lead. And great responsibility under God is placed on those who are in authority. Let not many of you become teachers like me. God holds to a greater account. The noun helper used here of the first woman is used 21 times in the Old Testament, the great majority of which are used of God himself. 16 times out of the 21, this word is used of God acting as an ally or helper to man against military enemies, as in Exodus 18.4, Deuteronomy 33.7. Or it's used as God, God as man's helper in relation to life in general. Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2 and Psalm 124 verse 8 as examples. Helper uniformly designates one who assists, not one who leads. When God is spoken of as a helper to man, he isn't in that capacity acting as the leader. He's a helper. He's submitting to man's need and helping him. Kind of like the gift of helps. Nothing inferior about it. Because the assister in so many cases, the assister is God himself. Who is not inferior in any way. Assisting or following is a noble role borne out by the fact that God himself so often takes this role in regard to us. Only a sinful attitude assumes leaders are necessarily superior just because they are leaders. They're not. They're just leaders. And human ones are full of error and sin as well. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 has often been misinterpreted as though it does, does away with role or gender or authority distinctions in this life. Galatians 3 and verse 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Well, there, there are Jews and then there are non-Jews. No, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor freeman. There were slaves, there were freedmen. There is neither male nor female. There was male, there is female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, is the meaning. This is teaching the spiritual equality or opportunity before God in regard to salvation. Men and women, no difference. Equal. Our gender, our ancestry, our social status are not relevant as qualifications for members of God's spiritual body. They don't matter. Whatever those differences are. We are all equal in our need for salvation. We are all equal in our inability to earn or deserve our salvation. We are all equal in the fact that God offers salvation freely to all of us. We are, we are on equal footing before God in access to 
and as members of the body of Christ. But in no way does Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 deny or contradict the God-designed hierarchy of roles in marriage and in the church as to its leadership as taught in so many other biblical passages including Genesis 2. Hoping that that point's clear, let's look now at verse 24. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. How many marriages have failed because husbands and wives have not left their parents? Unlike today, this same instruction need not mention, back in Genesis, need not mention a woman leaving her parents as in ancient Hebrew culture. It was written by Moses originally. Ancient Hebrew culture, in that culture, the woman so clearly and obviously joined her husband's family. It was never an issue that she needed to leave. She did. But he needed to leave his parents. And that's not a geographic thing. Doesn't mean even if you live in the same place as parents, there's a difference between that and leaving your parents. Now, leaving one's parents does not mean stopping honoring one's parents. It does not mean refusing to provide for one's parents in their old age. Matthew 15, verses 3 to 9, Dan, Tim... Dave, Jake, are you all listening? <laughs> it does mean that the main emotional ties and priorities are now with his wife, not with his parents. A man leaves his parents and thus becomes more like the first man who had no parents. Adam did not speak the words of verse 24. They are God's reflection on what God had done, and they are an enunciation of the principle of marital unity that Adam did say in verse 23. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. Marriage radically alters the authority lines especially in ancient patriarchal societies, parents arranged marriages at significant financial cost, and grooms, the groom's parents might easily have thought that they had some authority over their son even in his marriage. A son must leave his parents, breaking his authority line to them, and... He, honor his wife as his true counterpart, the central person now in his life. His parents' wishes must not displace what is best for his wife. And when parents attack his wife, he must defend her and not them. Unless she's guilty of some egregious crime like murder. The fifth commandment calls for the honoring of one's parents, but that commandment cannot be used by parents to, to challenge the supreme place of a wife in their son's life. A son certainly has ongoing responsibilities toward his parents, but his wife has a higher standing. A man is to be joined to, hold fast to, cleave to, depending on your translation, his wife, striving to prevent any dissolution of the marriage bond. There must be a commitment to, to maintaining the union of loyal love. Children will rise up and they will move on. But the marital bond is to remain unbroken. 
The two becoming one flesh shows that sexual union was ordained by God before the fall. This also provides the logical basis of man and woman becoming one flesh because originally the first woman was literally taken from the flesh of the first man. They're one flesh. Woman is one with man in origin and marriage in their sexual union and in their children. The man and the woman exhibit this one fleshness. A civil relationship regulated by law, but a spiritual relationship and a heart relationship governed by the word of God. And motivated by love. And of course the civil relationship is governed by the word of God, but he uses civil authority. One flesh implies that anything that breaks the physical bond in marriage, such as death or adultery, can break the marriage itself. However, sins against the marriage bond can be forgiven and couples can exercise forgiveness and make a new beginning in the Lord. Some of you may be troubled when I say the physical bond of marriage can be broken by death. Well, it is. Remember, Jesus said there is no marriage in heaven. It's going to be better. Thoughts for another time. Um, (laughs) Divorce, it's not mentioned here, but divorce will be allowed where there is a sexual violation of a marriage by one spouse or the other, but divorce is never required. God's desire is that the two remain together with forgiveness, with repentance. In becoming one flesh, a man and woman become more closely bonded than their blood relationship to their parents or siblings or children. They are more closely bonded than all those other relationships. And that bears remembering. God designed marriage as a permanent monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. The evolutionary lie has brought even that under attack and society now seeks to justify and legitimize fornication, easy divorce, homosexual relations, homosexual marriage, and transgenderism. All undermining the sanctity and uniqueness of the marital union as God designed it and set it forth, blessing it. One man and one woman in marriage become one flesh, united in a bond that supersedes all other human relationships and friendships, no matter how close those other relationships may be. The bond between a husband and a wife is designed to be lasting unbreakable and inexpressibly intimate. What is best for us was established in these opening chapters of God's word and we do well to abide by what he tells us here faithfully. And we do well to defend and to recommend it to all. And finally... The verse that some of you think came from the Song of Solomon, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were not just physically, but emotionally and intellectually innocent. They had no consciousness of sin in any category, of any type. Theirs was a sinless existence. It's a lot like a fellow who came along sometime later. A sinless existence with nothing to be embarrassed about. Not even physical nakedness. Nothing to hide from each other. Even in the best marriages in a fallen world, we hide things. Unable to bear the light of total nakedness way beyond physical. 
We are always to pursue complete openness and honesty and always to repent for all of our falling short of it. Outside of the privacy of marriage in a fallen world, physical nakedness with the opposite gender should always be an embarrassment and a reminder of guilt and sin. Thus God clothed Adam and Eve. In a fallen world, we need to be covered up, Genesis 3, verse 7. Some say that the nakedness of primitive tribes today shows that nakedness is good or appropriate now. I remember the era when National Geographic was the first playboy. In all but a very few cases of these primitive peoples who have various levels of nakedness in public, in all but a very few cases, even amongst their tribes, most have the erogenous zones covered. Now, such tribes who in their public nakedness don't have the erogenous zones, or some of them covered, this is no different than plenty of examples in modern cultures of nakedness in public and these are not examples of virtue these display the descent of mankind into inappropriate and sinful immorality lack of shame at such nakedness goes along with insensitivity to sin That's my reflections on Eve's creation. So much more could be said, but that will do. But as we close this opening pre-fall first two chapters of Genesis, I should say something directly. I've been promising to say something directly based on what God has told us about when the six days of God's creating occurred. The Bible, of course, as you know, gives us no precise date, but what it tells us is clear enough. In Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, when Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce, he cited Genesis 2, verse 24, and Genesis 1, verse 27, accepting Genesis, both chapters of creation, as real history, as divinely revealed history. And in Mark 10 and verse 6... Jesus said, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Well, now you've read the text. You know that the very beginning of creation, Genesis 1-1, in, was uh, the creation of heavens and the earth. Man and woman come on the sixth day. But Jesus still said, from the beginning of creation... He made them male and female. Mankind has been around virtually as long as creation itself. Mankind has not been around for millions or billions of years, and mankind has not been, or, or the creation of man did not occur millions or billions of years after the original creation of heaven and earth. Now, I've gone into a lot of that, especially when we, we went through the first day of creation, Genesis 1, 1 to 5. And it is Genesis 1, 1 to 5, not Genesis 1, 3 to 5. It's all those verses, and I established that, I think, at enough length, I don't go back over it. The biblical account is very clear that from the initial creation to Adam and Eve, there were six solar or literal days, all of which were marked by evenings and mornings. The fall came shortly thereafter. We talked about that. They were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. That had not happened before the fall. Genesis 5, Adam to the flood was 1,654 years. You do the math looking up the, the date, the dates, the timing. Genesis 11, the flood to Abraham was 225 years. So less than 2,000 years up to Abraham. 
Not a whole lot less, but less. Genesis 12, Abraham on through the Old Testament historical books or Abraham to the Babylonian captivity and then beyond that captivity, 430 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 7 years conquering Canaan, 350 years of the judges, 110 years of the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Jonathan. Sorry, Saul, David, and Solomon. 350 years of the divided kingdom, then of Israel and Judah. 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. And then the return and the rebuilding, 140 years. So about 1,500 years from Abraham to the rebuilding and restoration of Jerusalem or the end of the Old Testament. And then 400 years of silence before you come to Jesus. So, about 2,000 years from creation to Abraham, about 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ, and about 2,000 years from Christ to us now. Archbishop Usher looked carefully at the biblical genealogies, and he concluded that creation was in 4004 BC. I don't think you have to hold to that date exactly, but he's not far off if he's off. But based on what scripture says, the universe, the earth included, is about 6,000 years old. Maybe a little more. Now, maybe there were gaps in these genealogies. Many have said that. But even if there were, there could not be millions of years worth of gaps or even thousands of years or hundreds of years worth of gaps without stretching the genealogies beyond all credibility. And we know enough archaeologically about the past going pretty far back to know that we've got pretty good evidence for about 6,000 years. We know the time frame of Israel. We know the time frame from Christ in the first century to us today. Adding time in the genealogies would have to be in the period from the creation to Abraham. But the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 are very precise. From father to son. And even if you want to say that father could mean grandfather, the times given are clear. Proving missing generations is very difficult without abundant evidence for missing generations. The assumption of missing generations is made to give more time to accommodate evolution. Not because there's any real evidence for it. So again, we must ask, is the Bible God's word and authoritative, or are the assumptions of modern evolutionary theory more authoritative? Many hold to an old earth and evolution because it is academically not respectable to be a young earth creationist. Many hold to an old earth because they have misunderstood true science and they think that science, falsely so-called, proves more about this than it does. And they hold this view because of assumptions about appearance and uniformity. They neglect the whole concept of creation, which necessarily involves an appearance of age if creation is to to be explained naturalistically. Or they look at the fossil layers, layers and they look at the rock layers and just assume that Those must have taken a long, long time to form, even though Mount St. Helens has provided visible, objective evidence to the contrary. They observe natural processes like rivers and canyons or decay of radioactive elements, and they assume that the rates of these processes have been uniform over time, but that just ignores the creation with an appearance of age, and it ignores what the Apostle Peter tells us in his second letter, chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, that everything has not continued uniformly. There have been two cataclysmic events, Peter says, the creation itself and the global flood in the time of Noah. Young earth creationists present impressive Geologic evidences to show that the present slow processes cannot explain the geologic record that we find all over the earth.
The biblical accounts of creation and the flood provide a more believable explanation. And further, and I know our time is running, even our current world population provides evidence of the young earth. Assuming population growth of just one half percent each year, which is only a fourth of the actual population growth, at that rate, you get the present population of the Earth in 4,000 years. And this is correct because about 4,000 years ago was the flood. And all of humanity is descendant from Noah and his wife, as all of humanity was descendant from Adam and his wife. Evolutionists must hypothesize an infinitesimal population growth for an enormous amount of time and then a recent staggering population explosion without any such evidence. So again, will we believe what God has told us or will we insist that human theories to the contrary know better? You can trust God's word in context and according to its multiple genres interpreted by a literal grammatical hermeneutic in all that it says right down to the details and so there we are six days of creation are the foundation and an anchor to correct un to correct understanding of all that follows the biblical worldview makes sense. Rejecting it leads nowhere helpful, and ultimately, such rejection leads to eternal judgment. Let's pray. Lord, this word is your truth. We receive it as your truth. There are many, many reasons that I might elaborate for the truthfulness of this, your word. It stands in stark contrast to what the world is saying. It stands in contrast to those in the camp, in the church, in the faith, who waffle on various parts specifically of this creation account, which is so abundantly clear. And it matters indeed, Lord, what we think of these things because they impact the whole of our lives. So as we move on eventually to Genesis 3 and beyond, may we receive this, your truth, desiring to understand it better, desiring to live in conformity with it and not in rejection of it, regardless of what the lost world claims. We pray in Christ. Amen. Amen. If you will rise now, may you be blessed especially you who are married in your marriage as Eve was created to be married to Adam. And may you find not only blessing, but may you share and spread God's truth that others may know him and enjoy the blessings that you know, which are not perfect in this life, but perfection is coming. Depart in his peace. Amen.